0: Um, and you've, uh, you've done really well to stick uh, with us, those of you who still are with us, um, over the last couple of days. And so, and this, this talk really is, well, it's on contemporary challenges to the Trinity and it is largely just reflective. Um, so, I'm going to highlight about three, four, five areas, which I think are significant areas in which uh, there are challenges to the Trinity. And uh, I'm just going to give you what I think is a way ahead on them. Uh, I think I don't need to do much more than that for a, ooh, maybe I'll get a bit closer. I don't think I need to do much more than that because um, you've looked at, you know, aberrations to the Trinity, you've looked at what needs, uh, what you need to be aware of. And so it's more just a, a question of addressing what I think are some of the high, high risk areas for us. Okay, so, and some of them are really not what you would think doctrinal, but practical. So, l- let's get started. I think the first challenge, if you're writing a heading, you you might put the heading, Lack of Careful Instruction. Lack of Careful Instruction. I think, you see, one of the greatest, uh, one of the great challenges for us as evangelical Christians that is challenges to the trinity is lack of careful instruction it is a challenge posed by the facts by the fact that our churches do not teach the trinity any longer that is we regard the trinity as somewhat as a somewhat esoteric doctrine that belongs in uh, theological colleges and even then only endured by theological college students who think, I've got to do this subject, I don't understand it, I've got to do it, and my lecturer is going to talk in all this terminology I don't understand, and uh, I'll just put up with it, and then I'll go and teach the Bible. Okay, so, now they may not actually put it that way, some would put it that way, but that nevertheless is what's going on. And so when they get out into their churches, they don't teach the Trinity. Now, I know that the word Trinity is not found in Scripture. However, The developed systematic doctrine that we know of as the doctrine of the Trinity comes from Scripture and uh, it arrives from truths that are stated in Scripture. That's what I've done the last couple of days. I've told you areas in which the Scriptures speak about the things that will later on become developed as Trinity. Now let me give you a confession at this point. In nearly 20 years of ministry... This is the first, in fact nearly 30 years of ministry now, this is the first local church conference I have ever heard of devoted to talking about the subject of the Trinity. Now that's phenomenal, isn't it? Let me tell you, I have been around. Um, You know, I've, uh, I've been in lots of places. I've been amongst evangelical churches. I've worked with evangelical student ministry. And, you know, you'd think if anyone was going to have a go at it, Students would, but no. And in fact, here's the confession. Before this conference, I had only ever prepared one talk or sermon devoted to the Trinity. That's not to say that I hadn't spoken about the Trinity in sermons, but in terms of a sermon whose primary focus was the Trinity, I only had one on file. Right. One, and it was to university students. It wasn't delivered in a university context. I mention the Trinity often in my preaching. However, there was just this one sermon. Now I suspect if I asked around my friends, they would say they have never preached on the Trinity. Oh, they might have preached whole books of the Bible, Old and New Testament. They have, may, may have preached thematic sermons. But I suspect some of my peers would never have preached on the Trinity itself. And that means I'm in some sense responsible for the sloppy prayers I hear pray in my church. Does that make sense? Because I haven't taught them well. For example, let me tell you that in my church, I'm sure this doesn't happen in your church, It is not unusual to hear people praying and thanking God for dying for them. Now, strictly speaking, if they're speaking of God the Father, as they probably are, does anyone know the name for that heresy? It's patripassianism. Okay, but it is a heresy. God God the Father did not die and yet people pray that way in church. I've heard them pray that way. It's also... Not unusual to hear people talking about Jesus as though he were God divorced from the Father. And that in some sense he's the placator of the Father, the one who makes peace. You know, that the Father, the God of the Old Testament, is angry with people. And so along comes the Son, the God of the New Testament, who sort of goes and placates his dad, you know, who's a bit of an ogre, really. Now that again is heretical. Right? That that's that's not Christian faith. That's not a right understanding of what is in the Bible. Also, it's not unusual to hear the Spirit spoken of as an it, rather than in personal terms. So I'm sure that doesn't happen with you either. But friends, it's true, isn't it? You see. Now, what is that? Our churches are full of sloppy theology. And let me tell you that sloppy theology breeds sloppy evangelism. It breeds sloppy ethics. It breeds a sloppy gospel and it breeds a sloppy view of Jesus. That is, a false view of Jesus. And, you know, what's more than that? It breeds sloppy and malnourished Christians. Um, So... A great risk to the doctrine of the Trinity is the fact that we never talk about it, uh, that we never address it. Uh, We must be teaching teaching Christians the whole counsel of God and that will involve teaching them the Trinity. Oh, I don't mean necessarily teaching them about the Cappadocian Fathers, uh, but that may be important to some of our people but at least telling them the sorts of things that we've seen are in Scripture itself and saying to them that the Trinity is not a bad word but a good word because it's people grappling with truths of Scripture and therefore a good thing to be doing. So we must teach people the Trinity. That's the first risk, I think, to uh, the contemporary challenge to the Trinity is lack of careful instruction. Now, Second heading, if you're writing it down, is the distancing of Trinity and love. Okay, the distancing of Trinity and love. Donald Carson has also observed this that perhaps nowhere is the Trinity more important than our meditation upon the love of God. Now, yesterday we explored this at some length, didn't we? We talked about God's. Uh, the the most defining and critical uh, thing to recognise is that God is love. And I also said, didn't I, that this must affect all of our relationships at every level of our relational existence. Every relationship we have must be affected by God's love expressed in his relationships. God as a God of love can be found richly in the Old Testament even though I think many Christians don't think so. See, this this whole thing about Old Testament, God is a God of uh, anger and wrath, the New Testament, God is a God of love and kindness, uh, people who say that have not read at least two books in the Old Testament, two books in the Bible. And they have not read the book of Revelation where if you picture Jesus, he's on a horse, Drip, there's, there's blood dripping from uh, his uh, his robes. He has a sword in his mouth, which is the word of God, and he is waging war. Now you read the rest of Deut- of, uh, of Revelation, and you'll find out there that God is a God of judgment. So that's the first book they haven't read, and then I haven't book- read the book of Deuteronomy. Because the book of Deuteronomy is full of the language of God being love, or loving. The word love is so characteristic of the book of Deuteronomy. So they haven't read those two books for a start, let alone the rest. So it's just not true anyway, that's a sideline. Um, the God of love can be found richly in the Old Testament, even though many Christians don't think so. God as love can be found richly in the New Testament, just as many people affirm. But God as love can also be found richly in his relationships as displayed within Scripture. Friends, let me confess that uh, it is this understanding of God as the God of love and as loving within his own being that has been most personally transforming for me as a Christian and an Old Testament scholar. And I've had some advance in these talks. I want to thank Andrew for uh, well, me offering myself to give the talks and him accepting or finding something for me to do. I want to thank him because in preparing these talks I have encountered a dimension that I'd never explored before and that I've now set myself to explore more. In preparing these talks... I have found that dimension of, God, of the love of God that God has, or the love that God has within his own being. And that has been personally transforming. It's opened up a whole other dimension of the love of God that I had not really thought a lot about before. Um, the love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is a whole other area. Of the love of God. I've often looked at the love of God as it demonstrates itself in His world toward us. And in both Old and New Testaments, it is rich. But there is that love that God has within His own being that is incredibly rich. Now, let me tell you that old Bible believing saints used to meditate on these things, they used to meditate on the love God has within His own being. And we I think have become so pragmatic, so driven by activity that this aspect of meditating upon the character of God within his own being has slipped away from us. Uh, we no longer do it. We don't stop and think, what is it? And yet the fact that God is love is somehow, it is something that distinguishes the Christian view of God from the Islamic view for example. Islam and Christian faith share an understanding of the transcendence of God, the otherness of God. We share that with Islam. We share an understanding that God seeks to be merciful to his people. We share that as well. But Allah's love is rarely talked about. And it is never said in the Quran that God is love. Not in the way it is within our Bible. You see, the God of Islam is somewhat remote. The triune God, the God we know, both relates to unbelievers and rules the world, um, rules the universe, and dwells within his people through faith in Christ. You see, Our God dwells with his people. That's a phenomenal concept in contrast to Islam. He sends his spirit to actually dwell within us. That's hardly a transcendent remote God, is it? And not only that, but in other New Testament terms, he takes us up into heaven to be with him raises us up, Ephesians says, into the heavenly places to be with him. The Son is God with us. That's what the incarnation says. The Spirit is God within us. God is transcendent but he is also close. He is accessible, he relates. He loves relationships. He is relationship within his own being. There's this wonderful story um, in Daniel chapter 2. And uh, what happens is um, the young exiles are there in Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And uh, he dreams, and we don't really know from the story whether he knows what his dream was or not, although we suspect he doesn't know what his dream is. And he wakes up in the morning, he knows he's had a dream, he doesn't know what the dream is and he doesn't know what the interpretation is. And uh, so he says, I want you to tell me, he says to his wise men, I want you to tell me what the dream is and the interpretation. I I know if you can tell me what my dream is, then you've got a fair chance that your interpretation is going to be okay too. And no one can do it. And uh, so... Daniel and his mates pray and they ask God noting that he's the revealer of things to make him the dream known and its interpretation and God does and what happens is Nebuchadnezzar thinks this is phenomenal does God really do these sorts of things can he be so accessible and what the bible tells us is yes he can he is accessible He is, yes, transcendent, but it's an accessible transcendence. So the challenge for us in thinking about the Trinity, particularly in your context, if I might say this, is to not make it such a cognitive exercise. It's not solely a cognitive exercise. It's not just something you do with your brain and think, how can I put those Cappadocian Fathers together and what on earth... Did Augustine say on top of what they had to say and how did that improve things? And what's that little eye doing in the middle of homoousios and so on? Okay, And what difference does an eye make anyway? There's all that sort of stuff. That's very cognitive, isn't it? The challenge for us in thinking is to not just make it cognitive. And this is a challenge for all evangelical Christians, if I could put it this way, and for all of evangelical Christian faith. Evangelical Christian faith has always been what I would call affective. That is, it affects our us in our own being, in our emotional engagement, as well as our cognitive engagement. And we evangelicals have become increasingly cognitive. Right? Whereas that's not our history. We have always been affective, allowing the truths of God to affect all of our being. So, if I can put it this way, uh, there is time to watch and learn from God's love in Christ and his love in the Old Testament in redemption and grace. It's good to watch those things. It's good to learn from them. However, if I can put it this way, there is also a time to stop and to reflect and to meditate upon and to just simply absorb the wonderful love God has within his own being. Uh, let me tell you what I've done since, since I started reading in this area. Um, I have taken to meditating upon the words of God to his son at his baptism before I go off to sleep in the evening. You know, in that sort of time when you're just going to bed at night and you're lying there, you're trying to get... I, I have taken to reflecting on two sentences This is my beloved Son, in whom I delight. And it's opened up for me. I think, what is God saying? And I just think it through. And I've determined that I'm going to try and work my way through the New Testament, looking at the statements God makes about his Son. And just when I run out of one as I go to sleep and I think I've worked it through, I'm going to do the next one and i've set myself the task on meditating upon those john 5 references you know all that passage in john 5 about the father loving the son and the son loving the father and all of that i thought what a good thing it would do be to just meditate on those things you know meditating is a good and godly exercise when i first became a christian i did it with john chapter 1 i just started meditating and thinking through. In, when I went to work, I'd take John 1, one to three on a little card about this big and I'd have it in my pocket because I was uh, at that stage I was waiting to go to theological college and I was an orderly in a hospital and largely I spent my time being slave labor for nurses. and uh, I would just move people from place to place and I'd be walking place. And I'd take out my little card and I'd think about it. Um, and I haven't done that for years. And I think we need to do it. You see, I'm convinced that this quiet meditation, this quiet reflection on God's Word, it's not empty-headed. Do you understand? It's not that empty-headed meditation. It's meditation on God's Word. It's the sort of meditation that Psalm 1 says we ought to be doing. right? That meditating upon God's Word. I'm convinced that that will open up to me more riches of the knowledge of God than I've known yet. So I need to be doing more. You see, I'm a very driven person, very task-oriented. You ask my wife if you don't believe that. I'm very task-oriented. There's always a list that has to be done today. And I don't have time to stop. And I think we need to start doing that. So that's my next hint. So that that one is, don't separate... um, Cognitive thinking about the Trinity from love itself and do some reflecting upon the love of God. That love which is seen in redemption but also which is seen within the Trinity itself. Uh, My next heading, if you're after another heading, is pluralism. Let me give you a ballpark definition of pluralism. Pluralism Says, we're committed to tolerance, acceptance, and diversity for the common good of all. Does that make sense? So we're committed to uh, tolerance, acceptance, diversity because we want the common good of all. And so, what it is, pluralism is about is about coming together, people coming together with a common recognition of their beliefs and developments and to, do, to apply that common recognition to things like uh, to contemporary social, scientific, economic societies. We, we, we come together and we say we're, we're working on this together and we'll accept others' views and we'll come together and share views in one sense. Now, for pluralism to work, you have to agree on some sort of minimum consensus about the things you share in terms of values and rules. Okay, for pluralism to work, you need to say, "Well, we're willing to have this common, shared uh, value and rule." Religious pluralism is a set of worldviews that has at its premise, as its premise, that no one religion can be the sole or exclusive source of values, truth, and supreme deity. I know is no one can be absolutely right on this issue, and everyone has to have a say. Now, let me say that such a western world that that much of the Western world has a commitment to this thing called religious pluralism. I saw a reference on a website the other day to the fact that that is very un-islamic, and I suspect that is right. Um, but Pluralism can even be seen these days in theological areas in thinking on the doctrine of the Trinity. Let me explain what I mean. Let me give you some examples where the doctrine of the Trinity has caused people to suggest that the doctrine of the Trinity holds the key to how we should think about other religions. Now I borrowed some uh, some of these comments from an article written by a guy called Keith Johnson. He says that one theologian he read said that God had something to God had something to do with the fact that a diversity of independent ways of salvation appear in the history of the world. So this is the God, the Christian God, has something to do with the fact that a diversity of independent ways of salvation appear in the history of the world. And this theologian said that such diversity reflects the diversity or plurality within the divine life itself of which the Christian doctrine of Trinity provides an account. Can you see what he's saying? He's saying, what have you got in the doctrine of Trinity? You've got one God and many gods. So within the Trinity yourself, you've got plurality. So, that can explain plurality of religions as well. Okay? So in this way, the mystery of the Trinity is for Christians the ultimate foundation for pluralism. Now, there's something really wonky about that, and we'll think about what it is in a moment. Another theologian has said this, and I'll I'll read it in such a way that hopefully we'll grasp it. He says, It is impossible to believe in the Trinity instead of the distinctive claims of all other religions. If Trinity is real, then many of the specific religious claims and ends must be real also. The Trinity is a map that finds room for and indeed requires concrete truth in other religions. Okay? Now, can you see what he's done? I wonder if you, you can see what's going on here. Let me explain, because I think it, it's a very interesting thing. Yesterday, remember when we started right at the beginning, I said, here comes the, here's the Gospel, here's some people that observe Jesus. And as they observe Jesus, they begin to think, who is this Jesus? And then they begin to that they experience salvation. Do you remember that? Our first thing, the gospel? And then they begin to reflect on, well, how can Jesus save us? And then they begin to reflect on, well, who is um, why is it that Jesus can save the incarnation? And then lastly they reflect on what is God like that all of this can happen? That's the Trinity. Okay, So the Trinity itself arises out of, theological reflection about it, arises out of the Gospel. But what happens if you get to the end point, Trinity, one God, three persons, and then you forget about what got you there. So you forget about what you've got there and all you've got left is one God and three persons, and you drop the rest. Well then you can start going anywhere can't you Does that make sense? you can, you can have well how do we where where is God 's plurality reflected in the world where is god 's oneness reflected in the world and you can just go anywhere and that 's what they do so speculative what happens is people detach their sophisticated thinking about God from its roots in the Gospel and it becomes an almost independent thinking about God. And that gets into all sorts of trouble. By the way, if I could put it this way, that's the great problem with liberalism. What's liberalism at its foundation? Liberal theology says I can reflect upon God without authoritative speaking from God. That is, I can reflect upon God without scripture informing me. Now if you're doing that, you can go anywhere in the end, can't you? Because your tendency will be to involve yourself in speculation and to drop any information that can be gained from God himself through his word and his revelation in the person of Jesus. So speculative truths about oneness and diversity therefore become okay. If you've cut yourself loose from Scripture, then it's okay to think what you like. But that's not the way Scripture works, is it? Scripture works entirely differently. Scripture tends to ground all its ethics in the nature and will of God displayed in his concrete works and interpreted in his words. Rather than in speculation, loosed from God's works and His words. So, have a look at what. Um, have a look at Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 2. So, Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, think about it. Why, if you're a Christian, should you walk in love? What does the passage say? Hmm, Come on, you can tell me. What does the passage say? Why should I walk in love? Because God is love. oh no but from the passage, it, uh, it is like that. Yeah, because God be imitators of God, and God is love. Yep, good. And there was another one. Because uh, Christ gave Himself up for us, died for us. So, can you see what you're doing when you're thinking, "What? How am I going to act in my world? What do you do? Say, so where can I go to tell me how to act?" Well, I go to what God has done in Christ. And that will tell me. The same thing goes for how you reflect upon God. So, how should I reflect upon God? Well, I go to what he's done and then I go to how scripture interprets what he's done. And I reflect on that basis. Not sort of reflective thinking thrown loose without grounding. Friends, in our last talk, I showed that evangelism is trinitarian. It arises out of God the Father's love for the Son, and it arises out of the Son's love for the Father. It's our focus on the spirit. Oh, it's the focus of the Spirit as He calls out to the lost, "Come." Now, it's the role of the church to declare the manifold wisdom of God made known in the gospel about His Son. So, friends, our task of evangelism is clearly taught in the Bible. So, if we're going to be faithful to God, we must be faithful to his word and teach and preach and live the gospel and its Trinitarian implications. And, as we do this, we must remember this, that accepting the right of people to deny the truth about God is not the same as knowing and declaring they're wrong. Does that make sense? Let me repeat it. Acceptance of the right of people to deny the truth of God is not the same as knowing and declaring that they're wrong in what they think about God. So it is right for us to say of people, your thinking about God on the basis of Scripture is wrong. But I respect your right to be wrong. No? Toleration must never be so true that sorry, must never be so dominant that we say you can believe anything and I'll accept it as right. Let me tell you that when my children are going to school, if they came home and they told me and we live in Australia, the land of toleration, right? If if my kids went to school and they came home one day and they said, Dad, do you know what our teacher told us today? 2 plus 2 is equal to 5. Would I tolerate that? No, I'd go up and tell the headmistress, headmaster, whatever, do you know what your teacher is telling my child? That 2 plus 2 equals 5. That is wrong. It never has and it never will. So it's wrong to be tolerant of that, isn't it? Because it's untrue. So it is in our world. We live, though, in a world that says, be tolerant of untruth in the area of religion. Not in the area of maths, but in the area of religion, be tolerant of untruth. No, no, friends, we must... If people want to live in a world where 2 plus 2 equals 5, we'll let them live in that world. But we must not accept it as truth. The same goes for religious truth. If people want to live in a world where they have wrong views of God, that's okay. But we must not just say, well, all right, your view's as good as mine. That's not true. We have revealed truth which tells us there is a right view of God. We must not buy into pluralism and especially not to religious pluralism. Okay, that one's the most technical and the most philosophical. The next one's easy. Jehovah's Witnesses, they still knock on my door every now and then in Australia and uh, they probably knock on yours here, I don't know if that's true, but they probably have, a Jehovah's Witnesses still I think occupy most of uh, uh, the world and still evangelise. What do Jehovah's Witnesses say? The Father is Jehovah, the Almighty God. The Son is a God, and I get that from the translation of John chapter 1, verse 1, but he is inferior to the Father. In essence, inferior to the Father. And the Holy Spirit, well, he's just an unpersonal force emanating from God. But friends, the Bible teaches that the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are each God. And the Bible teaches that the Son was the agent of creation. Therefore he made everything. The Son is to be honoured as God, and the Holy Spirit is a person who is to be honoured as God. The Gospel of the Jehovah's Witnesses is also deficient. They accept. They, they say, well, you can accept Christ's ransom on your behalf, but you have to prove that you are acceptable by your works as well. That is a prerequisite for salvation, friends. Those are enormously false views, and yet they are being promulgated throughout the world, and that is a threat to Trinity. Just like Arius was a threat to the Trinity. Uh, let me say except for some people like athanasius and so on we would all be arians today athanasius sorry uh, arius was an extremely charismatic man and he he designed songs to promulgate his views and people used to sing them all the time and then the orthodox side would design songs that could be sung back to them um But he was a very charismatic and impressive man. And it's only because people like Athanasius and so on were willing to combat him that we are not all Arians today. Um, So we have an orthodox view of Trinity, largely because people were willing to fight in this area. So we must do it as well. We must be very strong on this. I think I've reached the end of what I wanted to say and I'm happy to have any questions that people might address to me, but otherwise they're they're just the things that I think are the most uh, pressing needs, pressing challenges to the Trinity that we face. Some of them are more philosophical, most of them are, but that's the necessity of this particular discussion. Okay, any
1: questions? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's all. i is Yeah. Yes. Yeah, sure.
0: Yes. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's a very good... You can do it, yes. Yeah, well then we've not really done as well as we could. Yeah. Stand up.
1: Look, I'll say... um,
0: Let me see if I've got it right. Uh, The the question is... um, I'm not sure that yet we have heard a good answer to the question that someone might ask to me casually which is why do we need this doctrine of the trinity is that is that a peer assessment how does the trinity matter what difference does it make
1: that's right yeah 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 but why
0: yes thank you, yeah 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 okay. It's a very good question. I'll give my attempt, and perhaps Andrew will have a go later on, uh. It's clear then that I haven't made as clear as I could on the first day what I thought was going on. That is, we have... Remember my... Whoops.
1: I won't make that mistake. That's why
0: it says permanent marker. This one says whiteboard marker.
1: (coughs) Um, Remember we said here, in here, we experience God first as uh, the one who saved me. (coughs) That's
0: our first experience of God.
1: And uh, then we ask, the next question is, how, how is it that God can save me? So how is it,
0: or well, that Jesus can be the agent of my being saved? So. so that's the next question out.
1: How did? What is the? How about so how did Jesus bring about this salvation? And the next one out was who must Jesus be? And the last one was oh God. Who Must Go in What I didn't
0: actually do as much as I should have is said, this is the question of Trinity. And when I start addressing, when someone asks me why do
1: I need Trinity? I say, because if I don't have Trinity
0: this can't happen. Why not? Because. Yeah. I'll explain it this way. The, the reason it can't happen is this um, I am a human being. I am therefore affected by sin. Therefore, I can never. and I am totally sinful. I can't, I can't make myself acceptable to a God who is holy. There's no way I can relate to him and be continually in his presence. So how can that be sorted out? I can't, if I could put it this way, I don't have any shoelaces on, pull myself up by my shoelaces because I, I, I'm, I'm sinful, I can't lift myself to God. So how can I sort that out? What I need is for God to sort it out for me. But the problem is, God, I'm not God, and God can't, because he's holy, can't just forgive my sins, because he's then not just. Okay, so I've got a problem. I need someone who is both human but without sin, and God, and then I need someone. He needs someone to come to and say, "I am sinless, and I am willing to take the sin of this person upon myself." So that's that's this here. Yeah. So I've moved back the next one now. So that is who must Jesus be? He must be both human and divine, and then that's how he can save. He can save because he can take sin on my behalf, and he can only do that because he is sinless, and that's how he saves me. So the reason you have to have Trinity is because you need God himself sorting the issue out. and he can only do that if he's Trinity in the end, I think. And remain, as Paul says, just and the justifier of him who has faith. So it doesn't explain all the details of the Trinity but it shows a large part of what's going on. So, But that's a that's a fairly technical debate to get to that point, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, there, there is. I've just tried to do them more. the more. The reason we need Trinity is If I wanted the really simple one, is um, because I need to be forgiven. I can't be forgiven on my own. That is because I am sinful. So I need someone to intercede for me. That is what Jesus does. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. And that's about as simple as I think I can get it. Okay? That's why we need Trinity, and that's not the whole answer, but it's part of the answer. And you might want to have a go later on, Andrew. That's, yeah, but
1: that, that's so.
0: That's why I said God, from His perspective, works back this way. This one's we find Jesus, who is who can intercede for us and stand in our place and take our punishment and our penalty. And he can only do that because he's both God and man. And that opens up, if he's God and man, how can he be God and man and so on? It opens up
1: Trinity for us.
0: Okay? Was there another question?
1: Sorry, say that again? Oh,
0: pluralism. Yeah. Pluralism says... um, in the, in the easiest terms, we will have a world that ex- where, where we don't allow any distinction that will take away tolerance and acceptability. That is, we must have a world where people are tolerant and accepting of all other views so that we can work together. So we're happy to have a plurality of views as long as none has dominance and is said to be ultimately true. Okay? Now when you have religious pluralism, you move that into the religious sphere and you say, we can't have any religion which says it is ultimately true. Now we as Christians cannot accept that can we? Because Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That means there's only one way to get to God. And Islam says the same. That is, it says there's only one way to be related to God. Uh, Or whatever. Relationship's probably the wrong category to use. But there is only one God. Okay, and only one way of in one sense, living with that God. So in, the sense, in one sense, Islam too is unacceptable. Uh, sorry, is unaccepting of alternate views. So it doesn't want religious pluralism either. Um, what we say, I think, as Christians is, God is a God who allows people to say, I do not want you. Okay, so God, God God, will allow me to say, God, I'm not interested in you, go away. He'll allow us to do that. He may punish us for it, but he'll allow us to have that choice. Now, I think therefore we as Christians must also allow people to have that choice without saying we must force you to have our our religion. But what we're saying is we allow you to be wrong even though we know you are wrong. Does that make sense? So Christians, I don't think, can accept religious pluralism which says everyone can be, have their, their metre of truth even though there's no true truth, ultimate. Okay? We live in a world that lives that way, don't we? In Australia, we do. In Australia, we live in a world where anything you can have any view except the view that says, I'm Right? about religious things. Yeah.
1: You've been thinking the the proper understanding of the Trinity to the proper
0: understanding
1: of the Gospel. Yeah. It did also the other way around. Can you have a proper understanding of the Trinity without the proper understanding of the Gospel? Ah,
0: thank you. Um, you could you could have a cognitively right understanding of the Trinity, but it would be an esoteric um, cognitive exercise that is of no practical use. Um, and and uh, once you've done that, it's nice. But it's useless. (laughs) Because it's meant to drive us, our reflection upon God is meant to to drive us to ask, why is it that God is like this? Um, And so in one sense then it's a wrong view of the Trinity if it doesn't work its way back to those other things. Yeah. Okay. So it's not just a, a Theological puzzle that you do. You think, oh, I've got that one nailed down now, and I've sorted out substances and persons, and I've worked out this nice little system, and I've even got a little creed that I can recite that says I've got it worked out. But I don't care. In some sense, it's wrong. Now, yeah. yes.
1: explain Yes, for mm. but for somebody who's not we are being Yeah, why the Why do you have be Yes, the it, the matter, the Yeah, know Yeah, Yeah
0: you yeah yeah thank
1: you yes
0: look the best answer I can give for that I could give you a shot myself now but there is and I'm sure it'd be okay to uh, give a photocopy of this for those people who are interested but in the very last page of Timothy, uh, of Tim Chester's book there is. He opens his book with saying, I've got a Muslim friend who asked me about the Trinity. And at the end of the book he says, so now having written this little book about the Trinity, how would I answer my Muslim friend? And it's about a one-pager. And uh, Andrew could organise getting that done for you. And so it's a simple, you know, it's it's just got a series of points down the page. And I think that would be a helpful way of doing it. Okay? It's not in Tim Tim Chester writes... Easy. So it's not in technical language, but it's really helpful. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Brian? <laughs> well, I thought I explained that yesterday. Um, uh, yes and no. Uh, A mistake I think that sometimes happens within evangelicals thinking about this is they in effect say God, the Son, parallels husband and wife. I think there is no grounds for that in the New Testament. Okay? Nowhere in the New Testament I think there's a, there's a possible what looks like a possible exception, but I don't think it is, is um, Jesus talked about as the wife, and there's not even there's no exception for that, but there's a possible analogy in Ephesians five that may head that way but doesn't, I think in the end. that says, God, Christ is the sort of consort or wife or whatever of God the Father. Doesn't work that way. So to bring the analogy down to husband wife doesn't work very well. So yesterday what I said is, No, don't think that way. What does work is God the Father is in a different in a stronger position of authority than God the Son. So the husband in the New Testament and the Old Testament is in a stronger position of authority than the wife. What does God the Son do when he's in a weaker position of authority to the Father? He submits. What should a wife do? Submit like Christ does. What does Jesus do when he's in a stronger position of authority himself? Well, he gives up his rights, or not gives up his rights, but does what is in the best interest of the person over whom he exercises a stronger authority. So when you find yourself in a position of a stronger authority you act like Christ and do what is in the best interest of the other person. You'll find both of those in the New Testament. So what does a husband do? He's not told to tell his wife to obey, is he? Never. He's not told to tell his wife to submit. Never. He's told to love her and to be like Christ and give up for her, even his own life. Right? So that, that, that's acting like Jesus, isn't it, you see? Who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life up as a ransom for many. So let, let me just make this a bit starker if I can. In my view, the person in authority, in the, in the stronger position of authority in the New Testament, is the slave. That, that, that's what seems to me to be said. So what, what does Jesus do? He's in authority over his church. He makes himself the slave of their best interests. For not even the Son of Man came to be served, but to be a slave of and to give his life a ransom for many to be a servant of and give his life a ransom for many. See, now I think many of us as Christians think, husband in authority, that means I, do the, I give the orders. No, no, that's not New Testament. Husband in authority, I am the slave of my wife's best interests. Okay, then the, the wife who's in position of submission, what does she do? She does what the son does. Okay, so both do what the Son, Jesus, what, what the Son does. So the person in submission says, I willingly accept the leadership. And that's, that, that can be really tough. Um, but that's what we're told to do in the New Testament. Both, when in submission and when in authority, are to follow Jesus. Okay, so that's what works. The order thing works. The father-son analogy doesn't work as neatly, if at all. Okay,
1: yeah? Sure.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's a very good question. I'm glad you've asked it because I think that we no longer have this understanding that you can have two equal people who can have different um, authorities and yet still be equal. But in the ancient world you could have it see because I'll tell you why I think it happens see if I if I met you not here but somewhere else we're at a party what's the very first question I'm going to ask you what do you do why why am I going to ask you that because it tells me who you are so we now think that who I am is what I do right and hence we think if I am doing a position of authority, I must by nature be better than someone who's not doing that position of authority. That's not necessarily true. You can have very different positions of authority and we we actually do experience it ourselves. I um, Let me give you an example. Uh, the example is uh, I am a husband, in my view, and a pastor. That means I am in two positions, strong positions of authority. Um, I am also a vicar of a church under the authority of an archbishop, and I'm also a son of a mother that I must honour. So I must biblically honour my father and mother. My father is dead, my mother's alive, I must honour her. That means that some of the things she asked me to do, I should do because I'm a son who honours his mother. Um, In one sense I'm in a weaker position of authority there Um, and I'm in a weaker position of authority in relation to the Archbishop. But let me tell you, I don't think he's superior to me in essence before God but I'm in a weaker position of authority in some places and a stronger position of authority in others, but I'm not essentially inferior or superior to any of those people. The minute we start thinking that I am what I do, we're in trouble. Now that's what we do. Our whole society is structured around that. What do you do? That tells me who you are. And that's wrong. That's not biblical. It's not that's not how I determine who I am. God determines who I am. I know who I am before Him. I'm a forgiven sinner. That makes me exactly equal to you. And if I was your pastor, exactly equal to you before God. That's who I am before God. Um, that's why the gospel. So that's why all those statements are there. You know, there's there's now no neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, man nor woman. It's saying, look. It, we're, it's a level playing field for us now. No, we're, we're before God on the same basis. You've got a slave, treat them rightly. Because they've got rights before God, they've got a status before us, treat them rightly. Um, and so on. You know, we're, we're on a level playing field before God. Um, some of us, God has given positions of authority, that doesn't mean that we're essentially any better. Okay? Yeah. So it's all that thing about, don't get sucked in by it. I am what I do. You are not what you do. You are who God made you. In Christ. That's who you are. You are Christian. Christ's slave. Okay? Any other questions? I've gone into question time now, haven't I? So I've done my bit. Perhaps you can come and answer some questions. (laughs) Andrew. Any
1: others? Otherwise, uh, time I quit.